Over the summer months, we've been taking the book of Hebrews, one chapter a week. By necessity, you have to leave some stuff out. By necessity, you can't say everything that could be said. But I hope that you've seen some of the big ideas as we move through this book. And if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, you know uh, by now the overarching purpose of this book is really twofold. There's a, a negative purpose and a positive purpose. Negatively, Hebrews was written to warn Christians about the danger of falling away. And one of the first examples you see of that is Hebrews 2.1. That runs all the way through the book. Don't stop following Jesus. Don't fall away from trusting in Jesus. That's the negative warning. The positive encouragement that goes with it is the idea that Christians ought to persevere in the faith. And I just bookended these references, and I gave you one in chapter 13, verse 22. Hang in there. Don't stop following Jesus. Keep trusting in Jesus. Keep believing in Jesus. And those two themes run all the way through the book. Both of those themes are found... In chapter 12, there's a negative warning. Don't be like Esau. Don't fall away and harden your heart like Esau did. And there's a positive encouragement. Run the race that has been set before you. And we're going to talk about that encouragement this morning. I want to acknowledge that at the beginning of chapter 12, there's a reference to something called a great cloud of witnesses. Okay, There is a great cloud of witnesses. It's mentioned... Uh, at the beginning, Hebrews 12.1, it refers back to the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. So hall of faith is sort of a, a, a pun or a reference to the hall of fame. And the hall of faith in chapter 11 looks back to the Old Testament and it lists out all these Old Testament heroes. Not all that could be listed, but a bunch of them. Old Testament believers, people who had faith in the Lord. And it tells just snippets from their lives. And Ron talked about this passage last week. All of these heroes of the faith and what faith looks like. And this cloud of witnesses is a reference to all of these Old Testament believers that are mentioned in the previous chapter. You know that because verse 1 begins with the word, therefore. right? In light of what I just said, all this stuff about the, the hall of faith and this, these Old Testament believers, therefore we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, Ron mentioned something. I just want to mention this again this week as you're thinking about this cloud of witnesses. Sometimes people talk about this cloud of witnesses as if they're up in heaven and they're looking down on us and it's like they've got a bucket of popcorn and they're watching life play out and like they're cheering for us and they're rooting for us and they're sort of spurring us on. You find this idea even in a lot of pretty solid commentaries that this cloud of witnesses, they're watching us and they're cheering us on, as it were. Ron mentioned this last week, and I agree with Ron completely. I don't think the idea is that these witnesses are up in heaven. I believe they're up in heaven. But I don't believe the idea is that they're looking down on us. I don't think that's the biblical idea. I don't see that anywhere else in the New Testament or the Old Testament. I don't think it's that they're up there sort of watching the play-by-play -play of daily life unfold and they're cheering us on and they're rooting for us. I think this cloud of witnesses has their eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, not just watching us. And I think the encouragement they provide is not like a, a crowd or a, a congregation or a, a, a arena full of people cheering, I think the very fact that they're there in heaven with the Lord, eyes fixed on Jesus, 
That's the encouragement for us today. Their very existence and life in the presence of the Lord is an encouragement for us to keep believing. And not that they're just rooting for us, sort of watching us. And I don't know if that makes a lot of sense. Let me just give you an illustration to sort of explain what I'm talking about. How many of you have ever eaten at the Big Texan? Amarillo, Texas. This is one of our claims to fame. The food is not that great, I'll admit. But if you go, you should visit, you should go check it out, you should eat there one time. And you know, especially if you've driven up and down I-40, that the claim to fame for the Big Texan, uh, in addition to the yellow, obnoxious building and all the other stuff they have out there, is a free 72-ounce steak if you eat it in less than an hour. And you also have to eat a salad and a dinner roll and a baked potato and a side of shrimp, and you get one hour. And if you eat it in under an hour, it's free. And if you don't eat it in under an hour, it's not free. They charge you full price for the meal. Now look, when you go in, one of the first things you see when you walk into the Big Texan is they have one of these pieces of meat wrapped up in cellophane right there when you walk in, and you get to see it, how big it is. And you look at that thing in person. I know there's not a lot of scale on that picture up on the screen, but you look at that and you say, you say that is impossible. That is a ginormous, huge steak. But then while you're waiting for your table, you might mosey over to the bar. And in the bar area, I don't know if they still have it, but they used to have on the counter of the bar a list with all the people who have eaten the steak. And it has the date that they did it. It has their name. It has their weight on most of them. Some of the people did not put their weight down. But most of them have their weight. And it has their time. How fast did they eat the thing? And some of them are like 15 minutes. It's unbelievable. And some of them are like little Janie Sue from St. Louis weighed 120 pounds and she ate it in 12 minutes. And you read through this and you're like, what in the world? Look, you walk in the front door, you see that thing, you're like, that's impossible, can't do it. But then you look at all those names on the list and you're like, well, maybe I could do it. You know, this guy did it, and this lady did it, and look how many people did it. Ten people did it on one day. Has the date and all this information. And you look at that list of names. They're not there in the big Texan cheering you on or peer pressuring you to do this. But the very fact that they've done it and they finished it, you start to think, well, maybe, maybe I could finish it. Maybe I could eat it in under an hour. Maybe I could get the whole thing down. In a weird kind of way, I think that's what Hebrews 11 and 12 are saying. It's not that this cloud of witnesses saying, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. They're in heaven. They finished their race. They're done. They're enjoying eternity and eternal life with Jesus. And the author of Hebrews lists them all out to say, they did it and they finished. And the fact that they finished means you can finish too. Do not turn back from following Jesus. Keep trusting in Jesus Keep believing in Jesus all the way to the end. Now, I mentioned this earlier, Hebrews 12, 18 to 29. There's this contrast between Mount Zion and Moses and what it was like with the thunder and the lightning and the blaring voice and all of these things. And the people were terrified and they said, don't let the Lord speak to us anymore. We're so scared. We're not supposed to touch the mountain or we're going to die. And this contrast with Mount Zion, this eternal city, the heavenly Jerusalem, this assembly of the firstborn, verse 23, literally, the church of the firstborn. 
the church, the, the gathered people of God in heaven worshiping now. And he's painting this contrast between this is what the old covenant is like and under the new covenant because of what Jesus has done, this is what our worship is like in the new covenant. And so you can read through and think through that contrast. Here's the big idea of the first part of Hebrews 12, and really it governs the back half as well. The Christian life is like a race, and we have to run that race with endurance. We're not talking about a sprint or a dash. We're talking about a marathon. We're talking about a cross-country run. We're talking about a race that you run with endurance. It's going to be difficult. It's going to test your mettle at times and your spiritual toughness at times. The Lord is going to be, have, to, have to be faithful to you and have to help you through this. But your job and my job is to run with endurance. Just a quick quote from A.W. Pink. He's talking in his commentary about this chapter. He says, The Christian is not called to lie down on flowery beds of ease, but to run a race. I'm afraid that in this work-hating, pleasure-loving age, we do not keep this aspect of the truth sufficiently before us. We take things too placidly and lazily. And I just put up there for reference that he died in 1952. Way back before 1952, he looked around and he said, spiritually, we're all lazy. I would love to know what he thinks today. If you could drop him down in the Bible Belt... 2019, and let him look around and say, does this look like people running a race? Or does it look like people trying to lie down on beds of ease? I hope that when you think about the Christian life, you don't think this is, this is what I do so that everything goes right for me. Like I'm doing these things for God so that he then pays me back and makes me comfortable and prosperous, and healthy, and he takes care of everything. And a lot of people, you know them and I know them, they get exposed when things don't go that way, and they suddenly have a big problem with the Lord. They're struggling to believe in Jesus. They're questioning whether or not it's all true or not. And sometimes you just want to look at those people with compassion. You feel for them when they're suffering, but you want to say, what did you think you were signing up for? A bed of ease with flowers and you just lay down and it's all nice and easy? Or did you realize that you were signing up for a race? Not just a, a sprint, a quick dash down the hundred meters, but a race that you have to run with endurance. So that's the big idea. The Christian life is like a race we run with endurance. Let's read the passage and then we'll try to make sense of what these verses say. Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten 
the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let's pray together. Father, open our eyes this morning to the truth of your word, to the power of your word. Father, we need these reminders, we need these warnings, we need these encouragements. So we pray that your spirit that inspired these words would open our eyes to the truth of these words and press these truths home to our hearts. Father, convict us where we need to be convicted and strengthen us where we need to be strengthened. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to tell you a quick story. This goes back to my fourth grade year at Belmar Elementary in Amarillo, Texas. Okay, There's Belmar. It didn't quite look like that back when I was there, but that's Belmar today. Belmar Elementary, fourth grade. We had three fourth grade teachers. We rotated between them. My home teacher was a guy named Mr. Scher. Mr. Scher. S-H-E-R-E-R. Mr. Scher. And uh, at the time, he seemed kind of like an old guy to me. But in hindsight, he was probably about my age now or younger, like 30s or something like that. And I remember Mr. Scher. He was super nice. He was a good teacher. And he was a runner. He had posters in his room about running and marathons. And he had some medals and some ribbons he had won. He was very proud that he had ran in and finished the Boston Marathon. And he was always talking about running shoes. This was back when people didn't usually spend $100 for shoes, and he would spend all this money on shoes, and we thought, this guy is crazy. He likes to run too much. So Mr. Cher, he is the running guy. Also in the fourth grade, not a teacher, but a student, was a guy named Joseph. And Joseph was about three years, maybe four years older than all the other fourth graders. He had been held back over and over and over again, and he couldn't get out of the fourth grade. And just he struggled uh, mentally with the work, and he couldn't get it done. But 
athletically, he did not struggle against the rest of the fourth graders. He was as big as a middle school kid, and he was taller than everyone, and stronger than everyone, and faster than everyone, and a little bit mean, and he just dominated us. And in hindsight, I I don't know if they still do it this way, but he played football with us, tackle football with us, and this man was out there running around with fourth graders, just (laughs) crushing us, and we were terrified of Joseph, and he knew we were terrified of him, and it made him a little bit cocky. He was a little bit mouthy. And so we all end up in the fourth grade, and we have Mr. Share. And uh, at the beginning of the year, the chirping starts. Joseph telling Mr. Share, I could beat you in a race. I can beat all these other fourth graders in a race. I can definitely beat the fourth grade teacher in a race. And it went on, and they chirped and talked at each other all, all year long. And towards the end of the year, it seems like it was the last week of school, last day of school, we show up, fourth grade, and Mr. Share is in shorts and a T-shirt, And he's got one of them $150 pair of running shoes on. And he says, class is dismissed. We're going outside. And we all go outside. And this is the the Google map, the track around Belmar Elementary Park. It's about three quarters of a mile around. And Mr. Cher goes out and he says to Joseph, how many laps do you want to run? We're going to race. And Joseph says, I didn't. He said, "No, no, 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 no. You've been talking all year long. All the fourth graders out there. Yeah, a lot of peer pressure here. How many laps do you want to race? And Joseph stumbles around. He says, okay, we're going to run four laps. Just four laps. About half mile, three quarters of a mile around the thing. He says, four laps we're going to run. Joseph says, I got you. You're dead. There's no chance you can beat me. So they line up, and he tells somebody, all right, fire it off. Ready, set, go. And they take off running. And look, tortoise and hare is not a good illustration because Mr. Cher was not the tortoise. But Joseph took off like a blaze. I mean, he was running hard. And at the end of that first lap, he was way ahead. And everyone in the fourth grade, fourth graders, you know, you're like, he's going to do it. He's smoking him. He's way ahead of him. And then here they come around for the second lap, and Mr. Cher is almost caught up to him. And Joseph's breathing really hard. And then by the time they come around lap three, here comes Mr. Cher, and you're like, where's Joseph? What happened? And then lap four, Mr. Cher comes around. He's not even out of breath. He hasn't even broken a sweat. I mean, he's just ready to teach math or something like that. And we're all standing there at the finish line like, where is this guy? Did he get lost on I-40 up there, or what's going on? And it was a reminder that running is something we all think, oh, I know how to do that. Christian's life is like running a race. Easy. I know how to run. I've been running for decades. Started running right after I started toddling. Running is not as simple as you think it is. It's never as easy as it looks when someone else is doing it. It's difficult. And it's kind of part science, part art, part grit. And the author of Hebrews Of all the things he could compare the Christian life to, he says, look, we have a race to run, and we have to run it with endurance. And you may hear that, and you may say, race to run. Christian life is like a race. Got it. I'm going to run the race. You may not have any idea what that entails. You may not have any idea just how difficult that is. 
You may not know what it requires of you. You may understand a a race on a human level, but do you understand it as the author of Hebrews is describing? The Christian life is like a race, and it's going to require great endurance so that you don't stop and turn back from following Jesus and you make it all the way to the finish line. And so before we jump in and talk about how we're going to run, I just want to make two points about the race itself. Okay? Two points about the race. Number one, running with endurance in this race means we're going to finish. We've got to finish the race. Running with endurance means finishing the race. Starting is great. Finishing is better. Paul told his protege, 2 Timothy 4, I have finished the race. I finished. And he goes on and he talks about a lot of people who quit. Demas, he quit. He's not running anymore. These guys, they were running with us for a while. They've turned back. But I've finished. And the call in Hebrews 12 is not to start a race, but it's actually to finish the race. If you're on social media, you probably see, they get shared and talked about and commented on, a pretty steady stream lately of deconversions. Prominent Christian speakers, pastors, musicians who have something happen in their life and they come to the point where they say, I just don't believe it anymore and they post it on social media and they say, I'm, I'm done with all of it. There have been a number of them just in the last couple of weeks. Look, those are people who started the race and they didn't finish the race. You don't have to be on social media to see it. You just come to church and you'll see it. Pastors know this. Sunday school teachers know it. You know it if you've been around very long. You say, you know what? There was people who used to be in the race. They were running with us. like They were shoulder to shoulder. They were on our team. They were running, and then something happened, and they quit. They're not running the race anymore. I just need you to understand that everyone gets excited in a race when the gun goes off and everyone takes off gangbusters. But the real joy comes not at the starting line, but at the finish line. Spiritually speaking, I know how exciting it is when somebody starts the race. We turn the lights on in the baptistry, we fill it up with water, we celebrate a baptism, we say, hey, this is great, someone else is in the race. And we should get excited about that. But that's not the end of it. True joy comes not when somebody just starts the race, but when somebody finishes the race. When they come to the end of their life, however long the Lord gives them, they come to the end of their life and they're saying, I'm still in the race. I'm not quitting. I'm running with endurance all the way through the finish line. Everything we're talking about this morning presupposes that we're going to finish the race. And we're going to finish the race that's set before us. And that means we don't get to choose the race that's set before us. It's just set before us. God didn't ask for your vote in this. Which race would you like to run? Would you like to have a lot of money or no money? He didn't ask you that. Would you like to be in this family or that family? He, He wasn't asking for your vote. Would you like to have this spiritual gift or would you like to have that spiritual gift? How would you like to be gifted to serve in church? Do you want to be up front where everyone sees you or do you want to be behind the scenes? He didn't Solicit your input on those things. Would you like to have illness or sickness? I know what I would choose, but God didn't ask me. He doesn't ask any of us. 
There's a race that's set before you, and your job is not to worry about running someone else's race. Your job is not to waste your life saying, man, I wish I was in a different race. How did I wind up in this one? Your job is to simply run the race that God, in his infinite wisdom, in his infinite knowledge, set before you. It may not be the one you would have picked. You may like to switch races. But what we're going to do is finish the race, and we're going to finish the race that's been set before us. The question is, how do we do that? Do we just take off running and just hope we make it to the end? Or do we listen to Hebrews 12 as the author of Hebrews describes how you actually finish the race that God has put before you? And what I want you to see is not every detail in the first half of this chapter, but the four big ideas that sort of stand over the top of it. What does it look like? How do you and I actually run the race that God has set before us and run it with endurance so that at the end we get to cross the finish line? Four ideas. Number one is this. We fight sin. You say, I thought this was a race, not a boxing match. Well, it's both. It's mortal combat in a race. And you've got something that has to die. We are going to fight sin. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 1. It says, let us lay aside every weight and sin. Take your sin, if you're going to run this race, and you have to lay it aside. You cannot finish the race if you're clinging to your sin. Can I tell you another place in the Bible where that same word is used? This might be a little surprising to you, the parallel, but it's used in Acts 7 when a group of men were ready to kill a Christian named Stephen. And the way they decided to kill him was throwing rocks at him. But it's kind of hard to throw a rock when you're all dressed up and you got a cloak on. So the Bible says in Acts 7 that these men took their garments and laid them down at the feet of a young man named Saul. Why did they do that? It's so that they could really wind up and chuck those rocks. That was the goal. We are trying to throw rocks at this man, and my cloak is in the way, so I'm going to be done with it. I'm going to lay it down. That's kind of a strange parallel, but that's the idea here. You're trying to run a race, and there's sin, and there's things that are just going to tangle you up. There's things that are going to stop you from running this race, and you've got to lay those things down. You've got to put them away. They're in the way. They're going to stop you from running. All right, can you imagine the folly? of you turn on the next Olympics and they're getting ready for the 100-yard dash or the marathon or any kind of race you want to imagine, and there's somebody with a backpack on. You would say, put that thing down. It's stopping you from getting ahead and winning the race. You can't run with that. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you're going to have to do that with your sin. You're going to have to put it down. Look what he says in verse 4. Verse 4, he says, you have a struggle against sin. Some of us may not be struggling very much. You might just be rolling over and playing dead to sin. Whatever form or fashion or variety it's taking in your life. But if you're in the race, you're struggling against sin. Literally, you're fighting against sin. This, this reminds me, this idea that we're struggling with sin. It reminds me of the Lord speaking to Cain. Right? Abel is mentioned in this chapter. Reminds me of the Lord speaking to Cain and saying to Cain, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and you're going to have to master it. 
You're going to have to struggle against it. You're going to have to fight it. Cain, if you don't kill this sin, it's going to eat you up. You cannot run this race of faith and hang on to sin. You've got to kill it. There's a Puritan named John Owen. He wrote a great book about killing sin in your life, and I think this is the best summary of the book. He says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Those are the only two options. There is absolutely no middle ground. You maybe don't even realize that you're in a struggle against sin. You maybe got in the race and no one told you you were going to have to keep struggling against sin. How many times has that happened to a new believer? They get baptized, they're coming to church, they're reading the Bible, and all of a sudden they realize this is hard. I still want all the same old things and I'm still attracted to all the same old things and I'm still tempted with all the same old things. That's exactly right. So you got to kill it. You got to kill the sin in your life. You got to lay those things down so that you can run this race and run with endurance. Number one, fight sin. Number two, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. I want you to read the first few verses with me again. Look in Hebrews 12:1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking to Jesus. The founder, I'm reading out of the ESV so you can underline that word, the founder and secondly the perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Two words I want you to notice in that, that first little section, founder and perfecter. Some Bible scholars say the idea of the founder is literally he's the pioneer. Like he's the trailblazer. He's the one who went ahead of us and showed us the way and paved the way and made it possible for us to follow him. This idea of he's the perfecter, it's the idea that he's the finisher, right? Like in baseball, he's the closer. He's the guy that came in to shut the game down. The only thing is he's also the guy that started the game. He's the pioneer and the closer, the starter and the the finisher. He did all of it from the very beginning of it to the very end of it. We've got to look to him. You can't do it apart from him. Look to Jesus. What does it mean to look to Jesus in faith? I'll give you a few more words to think about. Number one, it means Jesus is the object of our faith. We put our faith in Jesus. We're trusting in Jesus. He lived for me. He died for me. He rose from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. I believe and hope and trust in Jesus. He's the example of our faith. Talks about for the joy that was set before him, he went to the cross. There was no joy in the cross itself, but there was joy in what the cross would produce. A church a congregation, the assembly of the firstborn, the new Jerusalem. And for the joy that was out on the other side of the cross, he went to the cross and he put away the shame of it. He's the object of our faith, the example of our faith. He's the source of our faith. Ron talked about this last week. Faith isn't just something you conjure up in yourself. It's not just a spiritual switch you turn on or off. It's a gift that God gives to his people. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Can I just be honest? Some of you hear that point and you say, that's boring. It's just boring. Look to Jesus, that's it. I need something more practical than that. I need something more helpful than that. You just want me to look 
to Jesus. On some level, I can understand your frustration. A couple of times in my life, not many, I found myself in an art museum. And I'll just confess how uncultured I am. I've never been so bored in my entire life than when I'm walking through an art museum. And it's not that I don't like art or it's not that I don't think it's good or quality. I just sort of look at it and I really sort of like it for about five, ten minutes. And then I'm at the third painting and I'm like, yeah, it's kind of like the other one. I mean, they, you know, they painted some stuff on there and I I don't know what I'm looking for. I don't know what makes good art or bad art. I don't know what's what's sophisticated and not sophisticated. I look at the sculptures and I don't understand it and I just sort of walk around and I look at these things and I say, eh, yeah, okay. If you tell me it's good, it's good, I guess. I don't know. The problem is probably not with the art. The problem is probably with me and my lack of sophistication or appreciation for art. And the same thing is true for us in this room when the author of Hebrews says, look to Jesus, and we sort of yawn and say, get to the practical stuff. The problem was not with Jesus. The problem is with us. Because when you look to the Lord, who is described in the Bible as infinitely holy, and then you look in the mirror and you see yourself as a sinner who has fallen far short of his glory, And then you look to Jesus, who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. That's not boring. And if you look at it and you think it's boring, you probably need to go back to some of the basic things and remind yourself who God is in His holiness and reckon with who you are as a sinful person and then look back to Jesus and say, God has provided exactly what I needed. You look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Number three, this one's tough. Receive discipline. Receive discipline. I'm not going to read verse 5 to 11 again. That entire section talks about discipline. You could spend weeks just talking about God's discipline in our lives and I'll be honest, you're going to look at verse 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 and you're going to come away and you're going to say Okay, but how does it work? Like, what is his discipline? How do I know if I'm being disciplined by the Lord? And there's not really a clear answer given here. So I just want to throw out a few things that might be, underline might be, examples of God's discipline in your life. They may not be, but they might be examples of God's discipline. What does God's discipline look like? In our life, it could be hardships, could be illness, could be financial problems. It could be those times in your life where you'd say, I just don't feel very close to God. I feel like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling and hitting me on the head and no one's listening up there. I just feel like he's not close. That could be it. could be frustration where you make plans to do X, Y, and Z and it just doesn't play out that way could be discouragement. It could be conviction. It could be the kind of conviction that David felt where he had sinned against the Lord and he said, my bones felt like they were rotting from the inside, like I was wasting away. That could be the Lord's discipline. God's discipline in your life could be more positive. It could be teaching. It could be a Sunday school lesson. It could be a sermon where you walk away and you say, I I didn't know that, that was new to me, or that really stepped on my toes or confronted me or convicted me about something. That could be 
God's discipline in your life. It could be opportunities that the Lord gives you for growth. Not all discipline is just negative. It could take some sort of positive manifestation where God is working in your life. All of these things could be God's discipline, and I can't read into the tea leaves of your life and tell you this or that is it, but here's what I can tell you. God disciplines His people. And if you're one of His children, you will experience His discipline at some point in time. And the question is, how are you going to respond to it? And there's only so many ways you can respond to God's discipline. One would be self-pity. You can just feel sorry for yourself. You can go around and tell everybody how hard you have it right now and everything's rotten and poor, poor you. One way you can respond is just rebellion. You can just sort of be like the, the prodigal son and say, if that's the way it's going to be, I'm out of here. I am running away. I don't want anything to do with this. You can just be bitter and angry. You can be like the older brother in Luke 15 who stayed home and externally did all the right things, but on the inside he's just rotten and he's angry and he's bitter and he's sour grapes. And you can do that. You can keep coming to church and God's discipline can be at work in your life and you can just resent it and it will eat you from the inside out. Or you can let God's discipline in your life have its intended effect and you can let it change you. That's the purpose. It's not to crush you, but it's to change you. It's not to destroy you, but it's to make you into the person he wants you to be. We're just a couple of weeks away from the Dallas Cowboys Super Bowl season, 2019, Super Bowl 2020. So let me give you a quote from the great Tom Landry. You ready? Coaching is making men do what they don't want to do so they can become who they want to be. That's the job of a coach. I know you don't want to run these lines or these laps or lift these weights or eat this food, but you need to do it so that you can get where you want to go. You can be who you want to be. In a real sense, that's the job of a parent. I know you don't want to eat this broccoli. I know you don't want to do your homework. I know you don't want to do all these things, but you have to do them because there's a goal out there. In some sense, that's the job of a pastor or a Sunday school teacher. I know you don't want to think about these things. I know you don't want to talk about these things. I know you don't want to be pressured into these things, but this is who we need you to be. This is who God wants you to be, and this is the role of God's discipline in our life, not to crush us or to destroy us, but to make us into the people that God ultimately wants us to be, to make us Christ-like. He disciplines his people. It's not a maybe. It's not a he might. He will. He does it. He loves his children. He will discipline them. The question is, how will you respond to that discipline? Self-pity? You're just going to run away in rebellion? You're just going to be angry and bitter about it? Or are you going to receive it and allow it to do its work in your life? Number four, one last thought. How do we run this race with endurance? The fourth idea is that we pursue holiness. This is kind of full circle. It's the flip from, from the first one where we're fighting sin. That's a, a negative battle. Here's the positive pursuit. We're pursuing holiness. And there's some things in, in this chapter that are really, I don't know if you think they're funny or they make you mad or they're encouraging, but the author of Hebrews acknowledges that this striving for holiness, this pursuit of holiness is not easy. Like he admits it. This is not easy stuff. That's why you have to run with perseverance. 
That's why you can't just give it all you got for 10 seconds and make it to the end of the line. You've got to run with perseverance. Look what he says in verse 12. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Like, if I was paraphrasing that for Odessa, Texas, that would be like, put your big boy pants on. This is not, it's not easy. Fighting sin is not easy. It's really, really hard. And looking to Jesus, I mean, that may sound like a, a passive, laid-back thing. It's not. It's hard to do that. Receiving God's discipline in your life, these are difficult things. So get after it. Let's go. Look at verse 14. It talks about peace with everyone in our relationships. We want our relationships to be right. And there's a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In our vertical relationship with the Lord, we want holiness. In our horizontal relationships with each other, we want peace. And he says, you're going to have to strive towards that. You will have to fight for it. You're not going to drift towards holiness. You're not just going to naturally wake up and say, I'm at peace with everyone. So nice, so pleasant. Everyone's just in a big kumbaya hug. You're going to have to strive for it. It's going to take effort. It's going to take work. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take determination. Strive for these things. No one will drift towards these things. Earlier in the book of Hebrews, we talked about the idea of drifting. Be careful. Listen. Pay attention so that you don't just drift away. That's where you drift, away from the Lord. You don't drift into holiness. You don't drift into right relationships with other believers. You strive for those things. You fight for those things. You struggle for those things. And look at the hope of all of it. Look at the hope. It's in verse 14. If we run the race, the race God sets before us, and you run it with endurance, and you're fighting sin, so that it doesn't kill you. You're killing sin, and you're looking to Jesus, and you're receiving God's discipline. Look at the end of verse 14. There's this hope that we will see the Lord. That's the finish line. That's the finish line. Not health and wealth and prosperity in this life. Not even health and wealth and prosperity in the next life. But the reward is God himself. Standing at the finish line. That's what we run for. The hope that we will see the Lord. This morning, we don't see Him. We live by faith. And that's what the book of Hebrews is about. Early on, it talks about faith. Chapter 11 is all about faith. We live by faith. By faith, this morning, we take the Lord's Supper. And we eat crackers and we drink juice and by faith, we remember. We don't see it now, but we remember by faith. Jesus gave his body as a sacrifice for our sins. He shed his blood to purchase a church. We believe that by faith. This morning, by faith, we sit in this room and we sing songs and we take the Lord's Supper and we remember that all the things that we can't see now are very, very real. In fact, they're more real than the chair that you're sitting on. You don't see them, but they're real, and we believe it by faith. By faith, 
We gather together as the people of God and we know that God is holy and we know that we're sinners. And by faith we say Jesus is the, the hope that we have. He's the founder and the perfecter, the, the starter and the closer, the beginning and the end. He did all of it. We believe that and we believe it by faith. So this morning, if you're a person of faith and you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you followed his command to be baptized, we want to invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a person who's put your faith and your trust in him, we just ask that as the elements come by, you let them pass. And maybe you spend a few moments thinking about this race. What needs to happen in your life to get into this race? Not just as a sprint, but running with endurance to the end. So I'm going to ask you to bow and we're going to pray.